Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. We decided to go ahead and make it a digital experience this year. And surprisingly, we got some extraordinary feedback There was one particular old gentleman who's a very famous artist. He basically said, I'm not going to be alive next year and I can use dance rights to make sure my song line is seen. So for my coming grandchildren, there'll be an archive that they can access when it's ready. Reclaiming cultural heritage through dance and technology in the age of COVID-19. And Unsettled, the exhibition which challenges established narratives around early colonisation and Captain Cook's journey through the Pacific. It was generally a narrative of people coming here and having to fight against the harsh landscape and to develop this new country when really Australia was never peacefully settled. So it's a play on that. It also reflects that Australia's history is still unsettled. Without truth-telling, there is no way that we can move forward with reconciliation. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The inquest into the death in custody of Aboriginal man Nathan Reynolds has once again put alleged racial bias within the justice and health sectors under renewed scrutiny. Joining me to discuss this and the other big issues of the past week, a poet, lawyer and senior researcher at the Jumbana Institute, Alison Whittaker, and lawyer and Indigenous higher degree research liaison at the Jumbana Institute, Lachlan McDaniel. Alison, you've followed the case closely. For those who aren't aware of the facts, can you tell us a bit about the circumstances of the death of Nathan Reynolds? Yeah, I can. So in late August 2018 through to the early morning of the 1st of September 2018, Nathan Reynolds, who is an Aboriginal father, a brother and a beloved son, uh, he passed away in the Outer Metropolitan Multipurpose Correctional Facility out in Western Sydney. His death was, by all accounts, very protracted and from an asthma attack that, as of the time of speaking, is actually what looks like on the evidence, quite significant delays to treating him and even to assessing his genuine calls for help as an emergency that required care. So we're hearing lots of alarming things coming out of the inquest this week about it taking 10 minutes for correctional officers to walk down after Nathan called for help. And subsequently to that, it took even longer for a nurse to be called and then for an ambulance to be called. It's obviously a really devastating thing for his family to be sitting through. And they have a really, really clear vision for the justice that they want for their brother. It must strike you that there are, in listening and going through the evidence in this case, Alison, that it must resonate with other cases that you've sat through even recently. Yes, yes. 2020 has been a really big year for mob and for families who've directly experienced deaths inside. And perhaps, yeah, as you've mentioned, that one of the most devastating things about it is watching these patterns repeat themselves. And in their statement to media before the inquest began this week, Talia and Michaela Reynolds put out in their statement and said directly to camera that the thing that they were interested in, the thing that they most desired to get out of this inquest was that 
deaths in custody that looked like Nathan's and all deaths in custody for First Nations people would come to an end. And that's a consistent desire articulated by every family going through this process. And it's so frustrating to see that that has so clearly not been met and for such a prolonged period of time. I'm sure most of us remember the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody issued almost virtually identical recommendations that were still waiting to be fulfilled. Lachlan, a frequent criticism of coronial inquests is a failure to bring justice to the families of the people who've actually passed away. Is this a fair call or should judgment be held on a case-by-case basis? I think it's a fair call to be made. I think that we consistently see um, inquests like royal commissions into Aboriginal deaths in custody, and we've seen that the recommendations have been ignored since then. And when that happens, we see a repeat of Aboriginal deaths in custody under similar situations. So I think it is fair to look at the parallels between these instances of Aboriginal deaths in custody and treat them as a systemic problem as opposed to an individual instance. It's been the case that there's been more non-Indigenous focus on this issue. I think the Indigenous focus has been sustained over time, but that external gaze has increased on these issues because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Lachlan, are you hopeful that that might be a game changer in terms of what you and Alison have both described as a systemic issue and circumstances that continue to repeat? Yes, I am hopeful that the Black Lives Matter will have an impact on matters like Aboriginal deaths in custody. I think that there needs to be increased scrutiny around Aboriginal deaths in custody and history has shown that Aboriginal interest in this matter has not been sufficient to bring about change. In democracy, the majority rules and if the majority of Australians are concerned with this, I think that we will see much more movement. Alison, what thought is given to how inquests can often re-traumatise families who are going through the analysis of the death of a loved one and what support is available to them? Yeah, unfortunately, there's just no systematic support available right now for mob who are going through this inquest process. And what happens at an inquest, if anybody is so unlucky as to have to sit through one, either as an observer or as a family who's affected, is that there is an absolute kind of laser focus on some of the most traumatic moments of somebody's life, people who have lost their lives or experienced very significant trauma in deeply troubling ways, often very distressing for them and for those around them. And to dedicate as is the case for the Reynolds family, a week and a half to unpicking that and to also revealing missed opportunities, paths that could have been taken that would have meant that somebody would have lived is quite bereaving. And in most scenarios, you have this kind of open institutional hostility from organisations that have an interest in ensuring that they have no moral or legal liability for the death. So, This kind of this passing of the buck from one organisation to the other in telling the story of somebody's death is truly bereaving. And when it's done, especially to either no consequences, to just a referral to prosecutors, sometimes even without sufficient recommendations, it's easy to see how families get fed up with the process and also how the First Nations polity starts to get a little bit cynical about just what can these inquests give us? 
But families are also very strategic about their engagement and they use the inquest system in very, very smart ways. So I do think it's essential, but obviously there needs to be that architecture of support, which right now is being informally fulfilled by advocates who step up, by families and by the community at large. So these are just my general comments on inquests as a whole, not necessarily representative of the Reynolds inquest, which is still ongoing. Uh, anyone who wants to hear directly from the family should follow on Twitter at we will fight for the letter for you, which is the family's official account, and on Instagram, justice for Nathan Reynolds. In the lead up to the Queensland election, the LNP have announced plans for a curfew in far north Queensland. Lachlan, what was your response when you heard that? I found that this suggestion by the LNP very disturbing, especially in light of the previous subject matter we just discussed, Nathan's death in custody. We've had a Royal Commission into the protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory. We've had a Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. We've seen from history the treatment of Aboriginal children in state institutions through things like the Stolen Generation. And here we have Aboriginal children being used as a political football in Townsville suggesting that they're picked up off the streets and put into another state institution and their parents find. I don't think that this will have an effective result. In Townsville, we know that putting children in institutions is not a means of rehabilitating them or changing behaviours. There needs to be investment in programs and positive and proactive treatment of Aboriginal children who are at risk. Alison, given your expertise, I wondered too if you could share your reaction to that announcement, that policy strategy. Uh, it was unrestrained alarm on my part, seeing something like this as a potential policy announcement in Queensland. It genuinely terrifying, chills me to my core. Given the history of curfews used against young First Nations people in the past, this is something that should genuinely terrify us. I also want to note that this has occurred in the context of previous reporting, some done by the ABC and some done by other outlets, about vigilante groups working to do exactly this same work to ensure that the streets are unsafe places, that the streets are spaces where First Nations young people are made to feel deeply unwelcome and threatened, often with violence, by white vigilante groups of older white men in particular. So to watch a response to this from the opposition be to raise a policy where instead of disavowing what has been happening with vigilante groups up in northern Queensland, to offer instead that the state take over that role. It's terrifying stuff. Lachlan, I want to pick up something you mentioned earlier, which was the fact that there are better ways to deal with youth that might be at risk. And I'm particularly interested just to hear a little bit more on your views of what that might entail. Mindful, of course, that you yourself engage in a, in a lot of cultural activity and, and often that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a director on the board of NASCA, the National Aboriginal Sporting Chance Academy. And this is an example of an organisation that runs programs that aim at working with young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people, often who are at risk, to essentially work alongside them to set goals, for example, for life. So ask students, what would they like to achieve in life? 
and work beside them to find, I suppose, a way of going about achieving that. Also talking about things like responsible and healthy lifestyles, talking about being a responsible member of your community, how you can give back to your community as an Aboriginal or a Torres Strait Islander person, how you can work with elders. So what would be more encouraging is to see the LNP talk about investing in these programs that we know bring around real and positive change as opposed to punishing young people who may be engaging in antisocial behaviour. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Barrett and my guests tonight are Alison Whitaker and Lachlan McDaniel. Lachlan, you recently spoke out about your concerns that Indigenous students will be discouraged from higher education as a result of recent policy changes or mooted policy changes. What were the issues you were raising? The issues that I was raising with that particular article is that the fees around humanities and arts are being raised I know from experience, myself included, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people come to tertiary education to study in the humanities. In my instance, I came to university to do Indigenous studies and law, and I wanted to do Indigenous studies, A, because that was something that I was passionate about. It was something that Aboriginal studies wasn't adequately covered in my high school education. And so that's something that I wanted to learn more about. But I also wanted to understand the history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people better. I wanted to understand how I could be of better use to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through employment. And seeing the fees being increased on humanities that covers things like Indigenous studies, gender studies, political studies, is of great concern to me because I know that a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people coming to these studies come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And to essentially put a greater financial disincentive on coming to tertiary education is counterproductive to things like closing the gap targets. And I just don't think it's a very effective way of incentivising people to study things that the government wants to study, lower the fees on the courses that the government wants people to study, don't increase the fees on courses that aren't included in them. Alison, you've studied in the humanities and social sciences and you continue to work (laughs) in those sectors. What are your observations? It's troubling for all the reasons that Lachlan have said above, like we need to begin to view higher education in less of a a mercenary way that's about contributing to industry and think about education as a gift to its community and to those among them who may want to be critical citizens, who may want to engage with ideas about why the world looks the way it looks and how someone goes about creating social change, observing social change or contributing to the history that they're currently living in. So it's hard not to view these changes in that context and to kind of look also at the more subtle ways that studies in law, studies in the arts, studies in social sciences are devalued as if they don't matter or they don't contribute to our broader society and to the economy itself. It also undermines efforts that MOB have been doing for a long time to get more people into STEM courses, which are are among some of the job-ready programs that the government's trying to get people to go into, is that lowering fees for this is actually not really going to be the way to get 
more people into STEM, which I also think is important. What students need is more on the ground support, a higher rate of youth allowance and ab study, and institutional infrastructural projects like housing and Indigenous colleges that are actually going to meet the needs of students while they're studying these courses, rather than the hex debt that they're going to have to pay back later. Well, moving further afield than what's obviously pretty close to home for both of you, the New Zealand election last weekend saw a landslide for Jacinda Ardern's Labor Party. Lachlan, what did you make of the election result? I thought it was a very interesting election result, and particularly with regard to the diversity that we now see within the New Zealand governments. We see fantastic representation amongst women, Indigenous people, but people of a varying degree of cultural backgrounds. You know, I think in Australia, we often talk about ourselves being the multicultural success of the world. And Australia is fantastic in the sense that we have a very multicultural society, but we also have to look at success in terms of the distribution of power amongst Australian society. And when we don't see sufficient people of colour within Australian Parliament, when we don't see an adequate representation of women, I don't think that we can call ourselves the success story that we think we are. So I thought that the New Zealand election was very positive with that regard. Alison, what were your reflections? And particularly, I'm interested in what you think the result tells us about leadership. Uh, Well, um, I think we can almost throw out everything that we know about leadership to date with 2020 being such a a remarkable year for Western liberal democracy as it has been. But I guess it goes to show that just the remarkable leadership that Ardern has shown around particularly New Zealand's response to the pandemic and to COVID-19 has kind of been structured around like an ethos of care for people who are in New Zealand and Aotearoa rather than, I suppose, more punitive approaches, which we've observed here in Australia, which do certainly trouble me. Something that also was quite exciting about the New Zealand election was the offering of two referenda whose results have not yet been released. I understand they'll be released towards the end of this month on decriminalisation of cannabis and on voluntary euthanasia provisions. So I'll be looking forward to seeing those results as well. And interesting as well, I don't know how common of a practice it is for New Zealand, um, but to be able to take these social issues along with a general election offers a much more participatory democracy than what's just achievable through electing people into a parliament. Although on that note, I will say I have seen reports, although I can't verify them, that this is the most significant Pacifica and Māori representation that has currently been in the New Zealand parliament. And I think, as Lucky said, that is cause for optimism and a bit of celebration. Finally tonight, and continuing our election theme as Queenslanders head towards the polls, Clive Palmer is being taken to court by the rock band Twisted Sister for the use of their song, We're Not Gonna Take It. Amongst the band's grievances is that the version is awful. It begs the question, is there ever a time when the sequel is better than the original? Alison. Yes. Staying with music, Natalie Imbruli is torn, which I'm sure many of us remember from, I think it was the 90s or at least the early noughties. I've recently found out that was a cover and not a Natalie Imbruglia original, which knocked my socks off absolutely better than the original. There you go. What about you, Lachlan? 
Yes, absolutely. Sequels can be better than the original. One for all the sci-fi nerds, Empire Strikes Back was better than A New Hope. Oh, yes. Good call. (laughs) Thank you both for being with us tonight as we cut through quite a lot of issues that have been in the news in the past week. My guests this evening have been senior researcher, lawyer and poet Alison Whitaker and lawyer and Indigenous higher degree research liaison at the Jambana Institute, Lachlan McDaniel. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. An industry which has been hit harder than most during the COVID-19 pandemic has been the performing arts sector, with event organisers forced to rethink their entire business model in order to stay viable. Next month, the annual Dance Rights Competition will return to the Sydney Opera House, showcasing dance and cultural performance from Indigenous groups across the country. But with travel restrictions still in place throughout Australia, how will it all work? We'll take a closer look shortly. Right now, though, some music from Emma Donovan. Here she is alongside Melbourne-based rhythm section The Putbacks with Over Under Away. Place to call our home Said you'd be 
Emma Donovan featuring the putbacks with their song Over Under Away. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. The Sydney Opera House will next month play host to the sixth annual Dance Rights Competition. Since its inception in 2015, more than 900 participants and 68 dance groups have taken part in the event. Dance Rights began as an opportunity to encourage First Nations communities to preserve, practice and give value to their cultural heritage, as well as revitalise Indigenous leadership. However, this year, due to the impact of COVID-19, the festival will go ahead as a digital event broadcast on social media. Rhoda Roberts is the head of First Nations programming at the Sydney Opera House and she joins me now. Rhoda, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me, Larissa. Now, for people who aren't on top of this, can you tell us a bit more about Dance Rights and why it was formed? Yes, well, Dance Rights was really an initiative about reclamation and ensuring that the traditional aspects of our culture were kept alive and revitalised, I guess. But the big thing was that in the first few years, we started seeing each year with at least 300 to 400 performers and the dance groups just kept increasing. And this year, we did want to continue that momentum You know, it's so important for our communities. It really shows us the intergenerational exchanges that occurs. You've got elders and custodians who remember the old song lines or the dances or indeed the costumes that they wore, the right ochre markings and so forth, passing them on to the next generation in a really culturally safe space. It is a competition, but most of the entrants see it as a great gathering. I know many people are going to miss not coming to the Opera House this year, but, of course, with COVID, we've had to rethink. It's been pretty exciting, Larissa, because we've got communities that have never entered before because of the distance, whereas the digital platform has made it really accessible. I was going to ask you too, because of course the performing arts sector has been really challenged by COVID. So you must have gone through a process of deciding whether to go ahead or not and then making the decision to go online. How did you come to this decision and what work's gone into this planning since it's such a new way of doing things? You're right. It is such a new way of doing things. And you can imagine for many of our community groups, there is that fear of the internet. There's that you know, ensuring there's a certain safety as much as you possibly can, but making sure appropriate material and cultural sensitive material was observed and all the obligations that we carry when we do this sort of work. So we talk to the communities we work for 
and across our team. And there was just such excitement that people still wanted to gather and dance, albeit on their communities in lockdown or in regional and rural areas. And so we decided to go ahead and make it a digital experience this year. And surprisingly, we got some extraordinary feedback. There was one particular old gentleman who's a very famous artist. He basically said, I'm not going to be alive next year and I can use dance rights to make sure my songline is seen. So for my coming grandchildren, there'll be an archive that they can access when it's ready. Oh, isn't that amazing? I was going to ask you, you've alluded to the fact that by having dance rights on the digital platform and doing it the way you're doing it, you've actually given access to people who wouldn't otherwise have it. But at the same time, when you've put this on in the past, it's been this enormously important cultural gathering. As you say, it's a competition, but it's more than that. It's a coming together. Are you thinking forward about how you might mix these methods of what you're gaining through this digital platform approach, but also obviously wanting to hold on what's very precious about people coming together physically? Yeah, you know, it's opened up so much thinking outside of the box, really. My greatest aim is that our rights and our inherited birthright of dance and song and song cycles is maintained and ensuring, too, that there's a safety to it. We know when things go on the internet, it can be quite, you know, the appropriation of material, but... The most exciting thing was the accessibility by having all our Aboriginal media film crews across the country going into the communities that they're actually affiliated with. So there was a sense of trust and indeed ownership. And so the footage we have, some of it will go, of course, onto our heats when we screen them on our digital platforms and the finals are being screened through NITV but we have all this other material that we'll be able to archive and give back to those community groups. It also has enabled us to ensure that community groups have footage that they can then promote themselves with in their own communities and get work and all those sorts of things that come with being a performer. So it's really shifted, but at the very core of what we do, I guess is that advice from our cultural guides and custodians is about the purity of the traditional dance. How many groups are taking part this year and how diverse is the lineup? Oh, well, we had 38 dance companies registered. That doesn't seem like a big number, but when you consider that some dance groups have 20, 30 people in them, it's a huge amount of performers. We're actually going with our heats with 28 groups that have been filmed and the diversity is amazing. You know, this has been the incredible thing, the accessibility. So we have groups from Arnhem Land. We've got groups from Balgo, Warman, the Kimberley. The only place we don't have groups from, sadly, is Victoria. And we really wanted to try and do that. But, of course, with their whole state being locked down, it was virtually impossible for those groups to gather and be filmed. So we don't have representation this year from Victoria. We've got an increase with Torres Strait Islander groups from Banago on the Australian coast right over to Saibai Island, which is really exciting because then people will see also 
the real diversity amongst Torres Strait Islander dancing and the stories they're telling. An important component for the judging of the competition does rely on reclamation and revitalisation of traditional crafts. Why is this aspect of the performances given such priority? You know, we saw a project many years ago in New South Wales where there was the reclamation of making canoes from our trees and it had such a sustainable and healing outcome across the communities that were involved. So we've been encouraging dance groups and we saw a few last year where the old men are taking young men out, teaching them how to make spears, shields, things that are relevant to their own particular country. And also we've seen a huge growth with the reclamation of weaving and it's important to us because it does show that you've got young and old working side by side together and dancing on country. And those craft practices, we learnt a lot from looking in the early years when we were developing dance rights, looking at the history of the powwow movement in the States and Canada and the kapahaka in New Zealand. And those competitions advised us that the craft making was actually the key of the sustainability and the pride when you have your own, you're not using Western materials, you're going back to your organic practices. And look, truly, to sit and watch an old man teach a young man how to make a spear, that young man feels pretty proud. And I have to say the thing that moves me the most and what this year has just been phenomenal is every group we asked because we wanted to do a big collage of how diverse and the areas that people are coming from. So everyone in their own language do a really quick little welcome of the country they were on. But what happened was we were blown away by, and particularly the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds in the dance companies. They talked in language. It was just extraordinary for like three or four minutes actually explaining about the story of country. And these were men from Gosford to, you know, Mount Druitt to the Kimberley. And to hear them talk with such pride of that ancient mother tongue that was once outlawed in this country and their grandfathers were sent to jail for speaking it, to see this next generation have such a understanding of the nuances of language. It just gives it another layer. And I know there are older men and women involved in this year's dance rights, and many of them have said they never thought it would be possible to hear their mother's tongue in their lifetime. It's really clear from what you're saying how important this is to First Nations Australians. But from your perspective also when you put this on, What are you hoping a non-Indigenous audience will take away from dance rights? That is such an important question, particularly as we are in such a change in our environments and dialogues these days when we've seen what's happened with the BLM movement and, and the shift of the narrative. And I think dance rights is actually for everyone. It's a wonderful space for our people to feel empowered and show their pride and diversity. But at the same time, I truly believe the DNA of the cultural fibre of this country is our culture. It is our advantage. And I just think that when more and more people see that it's not just about 
throwing on ochre and doing a smoking and a shaker leg, the dance is so much more and the complexity of the stories and the kinship. I think all Australians, once they understand just an element of that, will be as proud as we are because this you can only see in this country. We're the oldest race. Nobody else has what we have. And when Australians realise that we are hosting the oldest culture, adapting, surviving culture, I think there too will be that pride. Have you noticed, obviously, sitting where you are curating across the areas you curate, have you noticed a increasing interest from mainstream Australia in Indigenous cultural performance? And if so, where do you think that's coming from? You know, it's funny. They always say, once you tasted the food, then you want to know about the people. And I think there's been such a shift in the knowledge of our foods, our seasons, the way we manage country in the last three or four years. We saw the dialogue occur after the fires and the discussions of fire stick mosaic burning, the understanding that we have six seasons in most of our communities, not four. The knowledge that goes with maintaining land and I think there's been an escalation of people, you know, wanting to use Indigenous foods and plants in their cooking and growing in their properties. I think once people have a taste of that, it almost opens them. And I think most Australians really do want to have an experience. But I think a lot of people just don't know where to begin or how to go about having that experience. And that's what Dance Rights does. Well, you've developed a really important cultural corroboree and thank you so much for dropping by this evening, Rhoda, and letting us know how you've been able to navigate the COVID-19 world to ensure that those stories are still being told and shared. Look, thank you for having me on Speaking Out. Rhoda Roberts is Head of First Nations Programming at the Sydney Opera House and Dance Rights 2020 will be broadcast on the Sydney Opera House social media channels, Facebook and YouTube, and the finals will be televised on NITV on the 21st of November. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Unsettled is the name of a forthcoming exhibition at the Australian Museum that came about following community consultation that asked First Nations people to respond to the themes of the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook's journey through the Pacific. Laura McBride is the First Nations curator and Dr Mariko Smith is a First Nations assistant curator both in the Exhibitions Engagement and Cultural Connection branch at the Australian Museum and and they both join me now. Laura and Mariko, welcome to Speaking Out. Now, because it's the first time we've had you on the show, I thought I'd start by asking you both, and perhaps starting with you, Laura, what's shaped your worldview and your sense of self? Well, I'm a Walwan and Kuma woman, and I've grown up in my community and have a strong sense of my Aboriginal culture. And when I started to attend university, I noticed that Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, although both speaking English to one another, there was uh, a lot of misunderstandings and I felt like I had a bit of a place in being able to help with that. So I moved into the natural history space so that I could help facilitate Aboriginal voices in mainstream locations and, and become a facilitator of my people's voices and other First Nations people's voices. 
And what about you, Mariko? What's shaped your worldview and who you are? So I'm, I'm a Ewan woman and um, my background is in museums, um, so curatorial studies and also visual sociology and sensory studies, particularly interested in incorporating Indigenous ways of knowing into my daily practice and also interested in history, so a practitioner in history as well. And Laura, with this exhibition, why did you decide to undertake a community consultation in preparation for the exhibition? Well, it's a very large exhibition. It's a very controversial topic. It's very much like Australia Day. Australia has unresolved issues around its histories and legacies and two very different opinions on how that's been presented and how that's celebrated in this country. And so it was very important for me to consult with community to ensure that I was representing Indigenous voices on this particular national topic. It's such a great way to ground, as you say, what is a big topic and a topic that a lot of First Nations people have a lot of opinions about. Mariko, what did the community consultation process reveal? It revealed that there's a lot of complexity in how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples view Australian history and particularly around the Captain Cook narrative. And it's told us that Cook is seen in many different ways compared to the mainstream Australian public and that it's important to privilege these First Nations voices and make sure that they feel included in part of the story. And Laura, from your perspective, when you got the feedback from that consultation process, how did you and the team then go about translating what the community was saying into an exhibition and in an exhibition space? Well, it's actually quite difficult because so much of Australia's true history has not been told and because Aboriginal voices have not been mainstream. The community wanted us to achieve quite a lot. So there were too many topics for us to address. And so what we tried to do was simplify those into a range of very clear categories that would enable visitors to be able to understand what actually happened in the foundation of Australia, both legally and physically to people on country. And so it's been a task of simplification, really, How do we teach people these very important narratives in a way that's not going to overwhelm the visitor in such an exhibition? The title of the exhibition itself, Unsettled, is fascinating. Laura, can you tell us about how you actually came to land on a name for what's a really complex set of ideas? Well, at the core what's happening is that Australia's history until very recently is that Australia was peacefully settled. Aboriginal people didn't resist. It was generally a narrative of people coming here and having to fight against the harsh landscape and to develop this new country when really Australia was never peacefully settled. And so it's a play on that. It also reflects that Australia's history is still unsettled Without truth-telling, there is no way that we can move forward with reconciliation. We also are in a year of bushfires and the ending of droughts and bad land management that's occurred over a couple of hundred years. And so the relationship between ourselves and the environment is unsettled. 
the history is unsettled. And so really there are so many things that are unsettled. And also uh, one of our colleagues said that very much learning this history will be a little bit unsettling for them because they haven't had to engage with these stories before in reflection of where they exist in this history. And so unsettled has many layers of meaning. Mariko, Laura makes the really important point about how central the process of truth-telling is becoming. And from your perspective working in the space that you're working in, have you found that there's an increased interest in finding out an Indigenous perspective about issues? Is that something that's shifting? I believe in recent years or recent decades, I think there has been a significant shift towards more diverse views about history and about the story of how Australia came into being and particularly being highlighted through in a NADOC week, having it as a a theme about truth telling. And I believe Reconciliation Australia had conducted a survey, a barometer study about what people feel is important. And it was an overwhelming result regarding um, the Australian public wants to see more truth telling about the history. And Laura, just from your perspective, as you say, this is a very complex set of ideas that you're taking an audience through. But as you've been pulling it together, what are emerging as some of the highlights for you in terms of what will be in the exhibition? Well, the very important points, the big major points that I think people need to understand because they're directly connected to our socioeconomic experience as Aboriginal people. And so very much because this exhibition was in response to the Cook anniversary, the first theme we focus on is about what Aboriginal people think and feel and were thinking and feeling and what stories were passed down to their descendants. So Aboriginal story of Cook from the shore and the shore only, but then, of course, recognising invasions and that there were multiple invasions, not only one invasion, fighting wars. It's so important for not only the Aboriginal people of the time, but also the non-Indigenous people who had arrived in Australia, that they were engaged in a very large set of wars across the country. Uh, remembering massacres. In my hometown, we have bridges and parks and different things named after people who actually massacred ancestors of ours. And so it's important to remember those massacres and so that people can understand that there's still hurt and pain around those topics. And of course, the surviving genocide, that genocide was enacted in Australia. And a lot of those legacies are still reflected in a lot of our problems today. So over-incarceration, parenting with stolen generations, dispersal, missions and reserves, and how people live one another in a community. So there's a lot of things that need to be recognised so that we can be able to fix them or put structures in place so that we can have a better shared future. It strikes me listening to the process, the very collaborative process you've gone through in terms of thinking about the exhibition and some of the thematics you've pulled out, that one of the things you've got to juggle is that you'll have two audiences, really. You'll have the non-Indigenous audience and a First Nations audience who I suspect would have really different expectations. What are you hoping that a First Nations audience will feel when they walk through the exhibition? Really, there's a lot of pressure on us, you know, to get this story right. For so long, Aboriginal people have been calling for truth-telling. And so we would hope that an Aboriginal visitor to this exhibition feels relief and feels that finally the truth is being told and a weight can come off their shoulders as well. Because on a day 
day-to-day basis, Aboriginal people are constantly having to mitigate stereotypes of themselves or their families or of others. And to see a large cultural institution engage with these histories. I mean, we're a natural history museum. We're a site of authority. And so I feel that Aboriginal people will feel a great sense of relief from the show. But at the same time, we need to be careful not to re-traumatise our own people with these histories. And very interestingly, in the consultation report, you can see that Aboriginal people have asked not to see pictures of our people in chains and shackles and those pictures that re-traumatise people because we have seen them a lot, but they don't seem to have any impact on non-Indigenous Australians. And so take a different approach to that storytelling. Uh, That's what we're hoping to have achieved when we open the show. And for you, Laura, just also thinking about the other side of the audience there, the non-Indigenous audience, you made the point earlier that, you know, these are tough questions and tough issues, and you are trying to create a space that not only at the same time is welcoming of Indigenous people who are so excluded from and felt so alienated from these very institutions, but are trying to bring a non-Indigenous audience in, in a way that will engage them. How are you achieving that? Well, it's a very difficult one. We have to make sure that the histories we're presenting are not too harsh, I guess, upon the visitor. Uh, We want the visitor to engage with these themes and topics, but we don't want them to overwhelm the visitor so much that they turn off because Aboriginal people in this country, we cannot move forward by ourselves. The structures that we live in, the people that we engage with on a daily basis, we need all Australians to move forward with us. And so essentially this exhibition must engage people and not switch them off to these heavy histories. And so I guess we're trying to use a mixture of cultural storytelling, facts, whilst at the same time being conscious and having the visitor engage with concepts and themes that they might understand. And I guess just the idea that it's a reflection on the 250th anniversary of Cook in the Pacific that doesn't really mention Captain Cook might be also something that wakes them up a bit. Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, Cook is but a small footnote in Australia's history. Really, he started to be celebrated much more in the 1900s when Australia was trying to justify itself as a new nation. So he's very much a narrative that has been created in the last 100 to 120 years. And so really in the actual foundation story and how that's played out across the country, he he didn't have much of a role. I mean, Cook would have never heard the word Australia. He was also deceased nine years before the First Fleet arrived. And so we're doing a much more reflective history of Cook's role. And secondly, people are just so sick of Cook, our people especially. Everybody knows his story. And so this is an opportunity to talk about other people that might not be as well known in the foundation narratives such as Joseph Banks and James Matra. Well, thank you both for being with us this evening on Speaking Out and dropping by and sharing your thoughts and your process in putting together this really important upcoming exhibition. Thank you so much. Laura McBride is the First Nations Curator and Dr Mariko Smith is a First Nations Assistant Curator both in the Exhibitions Engagement and Cultural Connection Branch at the Australian Museum. Unsettled will open at the Australian Museum in 2021.
That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Thank you.